Amen. This morning, uh, as we've said all along here, uh, we are we're celebrating Advent. It's a sweet time for Christians all over the world. And it's one that's made all the sweeter the more clearly we look into the realities that made Jesus necessary. That's what Advent has always been about. It isn't just about celebrating his coming. It's also about thinking carefully about why he had to come for us to have any hope. There's a lot that works against us celebrating Christmas with eyes that are open and hearts that are engaged. And you don't need me to tell you that. It's familiar, right? It, we, we all know about all of the different things that the Christmas season brings to bear on us, weighs in on us. We all know about the sort of schizophrenic nature of celebrating Christmas. Um, I've been thinking of it this year mostly in light of the music that we've been listening to. So we've got a couple of these sort of Christmas great song samplers uh, that have, you know, Bing Crosby and, you know, the Atlanta Symphony Chorus and, um, and, uh, and Kathleen Battle and all sorts of different genres all thrown in together. And so you go from Deck the Halls into an operatic rendition of Away in the Manger. You go from um, I, I'll Be Home for Christmas to the Hallelujah Chorus in all of its glory and splendor. Um, and maybe you stream Pandora, I don't know. I mean, you go from Grandma Got Run Over by a Reindeer to uh, uh, Let All Mortal Flesh Be Silent. I don't know. But you're, it, it's, it's constantly going back and forth, back and forth. It, and I think in our culture, that's what Christmas has become, even for, for those of us who celebrate it in light of Jesus. And you're probably expecting me to complain about that, right? To do a sort of Charlie Brown-style critique of the of, of the obscurity of the true meaning of Christmas, what Christmas is all about. And I'm not going to do that, actually. I'm going to confound your expectations this morning. And I'm going to say that I actually think the fact that we go back and forth between Christmas as this time of celebration, of, of sentimental longing and memory, of feasting and joviality, to Christmas as celebrating the birth of Jesus as a religious holiday, the fact that we go back and forth between those two is... Okay, and it's actually helpful in one way. Let me say what I mean about that. I, I see these two things as very separate. There's the, there's the Christian celebration of Christmas, where we think about the fact that Jesus has come, and we celebrate that together. And then there's Christmas as it's become in American culture. It's a time of, of thinking back, of to, to good memories with family, maybe for you, or making new memories with friends and family. It's nostalgic and sentimental. It's a time for celebration and feasting and giving gifts to people that you care about. All those things are great. There's nothing to be, they're, they're not to be sort of pushed back or held at bay, I don't think. Let it be what it is. But, where these two separate things come together, the Christmas as American or Western culture, what it's become there, and Christmas as celebration of Jesus' birth, where those two things come together is on the promise that both of them make, the promise of joy and satisfaction in a year that otherwise maybe was pretty dark or sad. Just look at any of the marketing that comes along with Christmas, and you know 
listen to any of the songs. They're selling us a vision of joy, of hope and gladness. And I've said, I think sentimentality, even some consumption of goods that we give to other people has its place. It's not necessarily wrong. But sentimentality, the warm and fuzzies, good memories, perfect gifts, they are no match for darkness. The darkness that Kit and Fernando and Brittany are facing this week. The darkness that you are inevitably facing at, at, at some level in your experience right now. I think ultimately the hope of Christmas for everybody, the Christmas as cultural activity, celebration, gift-giving, good memories, that kind of Christmas. The hope of everybody when you start rolling into October and you're down or you're facing something hard is that if you can just hold on for the holidays, right? Just wait for those holidays. We'll get a break, take some time off of work. Maybe somebody's going to give me exactly what I've been wanting. Then maybe that'll break up the monotony of my pain. Every year, that doesn't happen. Where the two things come together, Christmas as religious celebration of Jesus' birth, Christmas as fun cultural tradition, where they come together is that they promise us that they can give us joy in the midst of pain. And the reason I think it's good that the celebration of Jesus' birth is sort of held alongside this celebration of what Christmas has become in our culture is that the, the emptiness, the weakness of even a good thing like the celebration of Christmas in Western culture serves to highlight the sweetness, the depth, the all-sufficiency of the thing that Jesus came to offer. Both offer joy and darkness only one can deliver. And holding them together if we're able to see them as separate things that go side by side in our experience this year, holding them together is only going to make Jesus look better. Now, what I want to do today, and then again next week, is, is try to help you do that well. You try to hold Jesus up with more clarity to help you see what it is that is offered to us in him so that when you sing your Christmas carols, when you celebrate Christmas with your friends and family, you can celebrate Jesus in the middle of it all and do that with more clarity. John's going to help us here. John is what we've been studying all year. And one of the things we've noticed all through John is that he loves to use the images of light and darkness. Maybe you haven't noticed that. It's all through John. In fact, John uses the word for light. I, I believe the number is 23 times, something like one-third of all the uses in the whole New Testament. John's all about it. And John's all about the promise that this light that is Jesus will triumph over darkness. So what we want to do today, because, because our celebration of Christmas is, is so involved with light and darkness, is we want to understand what is this darkness that Jesus has come into and, and how is it that he offers a light that that darkness can't threaten. We want to unpack these themes of light and darkness so when we sing about them, read about them, think about them this season, we know what we're talking about. That's where we're headed this morning. I want to begin by reading a passage we've already covered. 
So we've already, I've already preached on John chapter 1. That sort of gets me out of needing to unpack it in all of its detail this morning. What I want to do is just open it up more personally. I want to I share with you what it is about the promise of Jesus as light and darkness that's encouraging me this year. And to talk about that on a higher level than, than what I did before when we unpacked it. If you, want the, if you want this passage and all of its detail and how they all fit together, the sermon on this passage is available on the website. You can go there. This morning, I want to sort of spring off of what it says and encourage you with God's help, with the promise of Jesus. I want to begin by reading from John chapter 1. I'm going to ask you to stand with me, please, in honor of God's word while I read. I'm going to read uh, verses, we're going to really camp on verses 4 and 5, but I want to read verses 4 to 14. This is the word of the Lord. In him, that is Jesus, the word was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which enlightens everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. This is God's word. You can be seated. To unpack this language of light and darkness, the language John's using here, in light of what John does with it in the rest of the book, we need to see that Jesus is pictured here as a light that shines in the darkness of sin. That's where we'll start first thing John says to us, and that he's a light that shines in the darkness of sorrow. Those two categories capture everything the Bible says about what's wrong with us and the world that we live in. And Jesus has come to fix it all. Light that shines in the darkness of sin, lightness, light that shines in the darkness of sorrow. When John writes that, ju- that, that light shines in the darkness, what does he mean by darkness? We've got to look at how the theme plays out in the rest of the book to find out. This first chapter, uh, make a lot more of this in, in the sermon that I preached back near the beginning of this year. This first chapter, most of what I just read, is kind of like a, a, a poem almost that, set, that, that hints at the themes that are going to get unpacked in the rest of the book. It's written really beautifully in a very different style than the rest of the book. as a, a celebration, almost a hymn, to the things John is about to tell us about. So when he uses phrases like light and darkness, words like light and darkness, he's just suggesting something that he explains later. So for us to understand what he means in the passage I read, it really requires that we have done some of the work to understand what he's, what he's saying later in the book. Fortunately, he, he makes it pretty clear what he means. The first thing, the first clue towards what darkness 
means for John comes up a couple chapters later in chapter 3. And there, darkness for him is sin and evil. Darkness is the realm in which evil thrives and goes unchallenged. Turn over to John chapter 3 for me. I want to just quickly read to you this section. John chapter 3, just a couple pages later. Verse 19 says this. This is the judgment. The light, there it is again. The light has come into the world and the people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. You see that? What is darkness? The darkness that the light has come into? It's a realm where evil and sin thrive. Now, using darkness this way is not unique to the Bible. I mean, most religions out there use images of light and darkness. They like to talk about light and darkness. And, and in most of them, it's good and evil. Think of the yin and the yang that was real popular in America a while. Wasn't that back in the 90s? Everybody had the, the yin-yang symbol on their shirts and what have you. I don't know. Where did that go? It just disappeared. But for a while, I remember it was kind of cool to, to know what that meant and to have it somewhere. Um, it's, it's east and west. All, all major religions use light and darkness. And darkness refers to evil. It's uh, popular in fantasy, for example. Think of the dark side of the force, right? Or uh, in the Lord of the Rings, the dark Lord Sauron. One of the most famous quotes from the book, speaking of the ring of power. As the one for the dark Lord on his dark throne in the land of Mordor where the shadows lie. One ring to rule them all, one ring to find them, one ring to bring them all and in the darkness bind them. It's familiar to us in our experience too. I mean, even just, even just this week, you could scan the headlines of major newspapers and see this sort of darkness. There were terrorist attacks in Kabul and in Yemen. Contrast those with the report that was released on torture tactics used by the CIA that were much more brutal than ever acknowledged before. Or the report of the UN on global trafficking came out actually a couple of weeks ago with numbers rising on those who are being trafficked And one in three of those being trafficked is little children. Most of them little girls. And that's an increase from one in four just two years ago. One in four to one in three. All of these examples of darkness are rooted in a darkness of heart where people treat other people as if their pain is not important. People treating other people like their pain is not important. Darkness is the realm where this sort of treatment of people is okay. But we've got to be careful here. It's really easy to get fired up over the darkness that we see in other people or in other cultures, to see the darkness as a problem that sex traffickers have or racist cops have or terrorists or sociopath serial killers. 
they're defined by darkness. But the same darkness in a sociopath serial killer is in us too. And it shows up every day, every time we fail to care for how other people are affected by the things we want and do. Same darkness. And this darkness relates to the problem of sin in a couple ways. John sees it, he's described it in chapter 3 that we just read. It's a place where, darkness is a place where this sort of self-gratification can thrive unnoticed. Darkness is a cover where we get to do what we want. It protects our desires. And then on the other hand, darkness is described in John as a, a kind of ignorance that there's any other way to be. Darkness protects self-gratification at the expense of others, and darkness shields our minds from the fact that it doesn't have to be that way. I think part of our condition here is that we, we want what we want, but what we want doesn't deliver. Both of those are explained in this category of darkness. John 3 says that the that the problem is that when the light came into the world, people love the darkness because they love their deeds. They love to be able to do what they want. I think that this, this squares really well with what we know about how addiction works, for example. Just to take a more extreme example. If you've ever struggled with anything, um, any sort of addiction, um, what, what you doubtless have experienced is that you, you know it doesn't satisfy you. That's why you have to keep going back, keep going back, keep going back. But you also don't want to, you don't really, at some level, want to not have that thing. One, one pastoral counselor is really a lot more experienced than I have. He's given me a lot of help over the years. Said that, so for example, he said that, that he deals a lot with people who are addicted to pornography. And that one of the questions he's now begun to ask people who come and are open about that addiction, want some help with it, they just can't seem to shake free of it. That one of the questions that he asks is, if you could imagine your life free from that thing, if you could imagine yourself going from now to the end of your life without ever looking on another person as an object for your desire, would you want to live that life? Would you really want to live that life? And that if you're honest, more often than not, part of that answer would have to be no. Because these evil things that we do promise us fulfillment and satisfaction. We love them. So we love the darkness. But then again, what we know is that when we go back over and over, the same sins, they never get any more satisfying. And that's in John 2. Darkness is such a, a, a complex category for him. It's, it's a place where we do what we love, even if it's evil. But it's also an ignorance to there being any other way. Here, here's an example from John chapter 12. This is Jesus' language. One of the things John goes back to over and over is that Jesus is here and no one's getting him. No one, no one understands who he is or believes that he can do what he says he can do. John like, loves to introduce us to the lack of understanding that can hit all of us. 
So in John 11 and 12, Jesus is saying things about who he is and what he's offering. In chapter 12, in the middle of some sections where Jesus is being misunderstood and rejected outright by the people he's talking to, Jesus says this. He says, the light is among you for a little while longer. He's talking about himself. Walk while you have the light, lest the darkness overtake you. And then he says this. This is, this is what I want to highlight. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he's going. And then John explains what he means. Though he, Jesus, had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe him. So here darkness is not just a cover for doing the things we want to do but are ashamed to have seen by other people. It's also a, a, a set of blinders that keep people from seeing there's another way. The one who walks in darkness is one who doesn't know where he's going. He's aimless, who can't get free, who just doesn't see that there's another way. I think this is one of the things Jesus is pointing to in so many of his conversations in John. Think of the woman at the well who had been running from man to man to man to man all through her life, never finding one that would work. She was walking in the darkness and didn't know where she was going. The cultures that we're part of, the places that we live, the people that we're around, the way that we've been raised, all of these things have a power to limit what we can see. They limit our horizons in ways that we can't control or don't often understand. There was a time in my life when I thought Waffle House had good coffee, for example. Kid you not. I remember having conversations with my father, actually, when we would be drinking Waffle House coffee. But man, like, why can't we get it, our coffee at home to taste this good? Kid you not. We used to say that all the time. Part of the reason that I thought Waffle House had good coffee, uh, well, actually, you know, I should say, maybe half of you out there actually do think Waffle House is good coffee. I don't mean to come off as elitist. Each to his own, right? I mean, it's a little subjective, but, uh, but it's a big, wonderful world of flavor out there. Let me just, let me just tell you, live a little. Uh, one of the things I didn't realize, one of the reasons I didn't realize it wasn't good coffee is that I, I never... I only think this would be back in the 90s before Starbucks was big. They certainly didn't have one in Frisco City, Alabama, where I come from. Much less had I been to Crema or Bongo or, you know, fill in your favorite uh, undiscovered, too-good-for-you hipster coffee joint in East Nashville. I didn't know. My culture had limited my horizons. Darkness is a limited horizon where you... You can't see through it to know there's something else. C.S. Lewis gives us one of our best images for this, I think. His image of the child who, who's playing, in, making mud pies in a mud puddle, uh, I guess in their, in their backyard in urban London or whatever. And, and, and stuck there, not really looking around for anything else because they've never seen the sea. They've never seen what you can do with clean sand with ocean water to help it stick together, with buckets that can help shape it into some amazing castle. They've never seen it. They don't know. And in John, this is, this is the darkness of sin, uh, a cover that allows us to do the things we want to do and go on undiscovered, and a set of blinders that keep us from seeing 
that there's another way. We know it doesn't satisfy. We don't want to give it up because we think maybe one day it will, but we don't know that there's anything else out there that could actually deliver unless, unless a light shines in the darkness that the darkness has not overcome. Christ has come as a light into the darkness of sin that exposes sin for the ugliness we'd rather keep hidden, but also reveals the truth and the beauty and the goodness we would never see as long as we're trapped in our selfishness. Apart from the light, we will continue to walk in darkness. We will continue to believe that the most important things about us are the things that we own the things that we accomplish, the things that we're free to do with our bodies, those that we're able to convince to love us. We'll remain captive to the things we once thought were there for us to enjoy, but we'll remain dissatisfied by them. And friends, if you right now are aware of your being trapped in sin, then what you're probably also aware of is that the sentimentality of Christmas, the promise of new things or the perfect gift has no power to help you with your problems. They, these things are good in their own way, but they are no true light. They are no true light. But the true light, John chapter 1, verse 9 says, the true light which enlightens everyone was coming into the world. He has come. I think this is what Jesus has in mind in chapter 8 when he famously says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me, follow me, will not walk in darkness but will have the light of life. The light shines in the darkness of sin. But there's more to it than that. There's more to it than that. Because there's more to us than that. There's more to our experience than just our sin. There's more to what's wrong with us, to what we mourn, to what we long for, than our problem with sin and self. And the Bible comes at all the complexity of our problems with with the the straight-on stare and crystal clarity that these problems deserve. The light shines not just in the darkness of sin, but in the darkness of sorrow. When Jesus says that that the one who follows him will not walk in darkness, but have the light of life, he's making a reference that takes us into this second big meaning of darkness and the light that shines through it. All through John, in most places where light comes up, it's paired with life. You can see it even in the way that that it works out here in chapter 1. So look back at the place where we read. Look at verse 4 of John chapter 1. Here's what it says. In him, in Jesus, in the word, in the one who made everything that is, in him was life. And the life was the light of men. Life and light. Life 
further defined by his being the light of men. So the light shines in our darkness. The life shines in our lack of life. And the darkness or lack of life could not overcome it. I think that's, the, that's what we're supposed to see. That's the connection. What he means by light is life. What he means by darkness is some sort of lack of life. So, so what's he getting at here? What's he getting at here? John is quoting here from Isaiah chapter 9. It was read a little bit earlier. Isaiah chapter 9 says, The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. And then, in a, in a phrase that John doesn't include, translated different ways in different copies of the Bible, Isaiah tells us a little more about what he means. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Next phrase, in, in the translation you're probably most familiar with, those who le- live in the shadow of death, on them a light has shined. Who are those who are in darkness? Those who are in darkness are those who live under the shadow of death. Now in part, I think this is, this is the reference to the fact that all of us die, right? Rich and poor, happy and unhappy, powerful and weak, single or married, southern or Yankee. Put in whatever dichotomy you want. Everybody dies. Death is the great leveler. But death is so much more than just the end to just the end to the biological life that this mass of cells has. Death is is so much more than that in our experience and in the Bible. It's more even than just this feared unknown. It's a shadow. Death is a shadow cast over all of our life because of what death, the fact that we end there, because of what death means for everything that we experience while we're still alive. That's what it is for death to have a shadow effect over us. What does life now mean? What meaning can it possibly have if death separates us from everything that we love, from who we love. Just the other day, I was in the car with my son. I don't remember how he got onto this, but I was telling him about my grandfather. And for some reason, I was also trying to tell him about my grandfather's father. I don't remember how I got onto it. What I remember is that it hit me that I didn't even know his name. I couldn't tell my son my grandfather's father's name. Now, my grandfather was this huge, instrumental figure in my life when I was younger. And his father was a huge, instrumental figure in his life. And I didn't even know what his name was of this person who who mattered so much to someone who mattered so much to me. And I thought of all the things that my grandfather shared with his father of all the moments that they must have treasured together, the things that they did together to have fun, the Christmases they probably shared together. And I thought, those things had to have meaning. And now no one alive knows about them. They're gone. And this is how my mind works. Okay, so my son's grandkids 
are not going to know about what I'm sharing with my son right now. They're not going to know what fun we had this weekend, what we did. The memories that we're kicking around to each other, even now in his little four-year-old mind. They're not going to know the traditions that we use to celebrate Christmas and build memories for years to come. My son's grandkids will be important to him, and he'll be important to them, but they won't have any knowledge of the things we share right now. And what, what meaning can the things I'm sharing with my son right now have in a world where they're forgotten by everyone alive? That isn't right. That can't be right. They mean something. But death calls all that into question. How could something as meaningful as our lives come to an end? As meaningful as human life and all that goes into even one person's life. All the experiences, the joys, the sorrows, the learning, the accomplishment, all of it. How could something that meaningful end like this? Death is so much more than a biological problem. In fact, I've I've recently been reading this best-selling book by a guy named Luke Ferry. And the book is called A Brief History of Thought. Now, how pretentious is that for a title? Leave it to a French philosopher, right? Let me tell you everything people have always thought and do it in 200 pages that millions of people will read. It's a bit of an arrogant title, but it's a good book. It's a really good book. And he frames, here's, here's the thing that's interesting. He frames all of philosophy from the beginning of time, all of humans' best efforts at understanding who we are and what we ought to do with ourselves. He frames it all as our best attempts to grapple with the many, what he calls the many faces of death. How do we live well now with the consciousness that our days are numbered? How do we live well now in light of the daily experience of loss? What he means by the many faces of death is that death is much more than just the end of our ticking heart, right? It's also... It's, it's separation from the things that we love. We die little deaths every day. How do we live in light of loss? The fact that we love things but can't hold on to them. How do we live well in light of the death written into every day? This death that's written into every day, this is what Ferry says. This is how he describes it. This is a quote from the book. It's that which will not return. That which belongs irreversibly to time past, which we have no hope of ever recovering. It can mean childhood holidays with friends, the divorce of parents, or the houses or schools we have to leave, or a thousand other examples. Even if it does not always mean the disappearance of a loved one, everything that comes under the heading of nevermore belongs in death's ledger. What's he getting at? You know what he's getting at because you live in it. This life, even our charmed, western, comfortable lives, this life is a veil of tears. It's a life full of goodbyes, big and small. 
Love and loss always go together for us. And time carries away so much of what we care about. And deep inside of ourselves, in our souls, in your soul, you know it should not be like this. We were made for more. We must be made for more. In him was life. And that life was the light of men. I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness. But will have the light of life. What is Jesus getting at? He's getting at what he knows to be true. That the lives we're living now, under the best case scenario, they are a shell of what they're meant to be. They are but a shell of what they were meant to be. Jesus knows that. And that's why when he comes, he comes talking about life. He comes saying, come to me. I'll give you living water that you'll never have to replace. Come to me. I'm the bread of life. You eat me, you'll never be hungry again. Come to me. I'm the good shepherd. I lay down my life for the sheep. I lay down my life so that they can have life and have it abundantly. He's not just talking about biological life. He's talking about a life that you were meant for. A life that isn't defined or limited by the things that you love and lose. Something that is defined by the fullness of joy that is meant for those made in God's image. That we have thrown away when we traded in our creator for ourselves as ruler and king of our lives. He has come to restore everything that has been lost to those who will trust in him. So what is darkness? Darkness is sin, absolutely. But darkness is also sorrow, death over death and over all the things death does to life at its best. That's the darkness into which the light has shined as a light that that darkness cannot overcome. That light shines as the hope that you are right, friends. You you are right to resist the transience of good things to feel like I should not have to say goodbye. You are right to push back against the tyranny of death. It does not belong. It's an imposter in this world. That's why so many Christmas songs sing of the end of sin and sorrow or death. Did you notice that? Just in our worship guide, just this morning. Come thou long expected Jesus born to set thy people free from our fears, our sorrows, what we don't want to lose, from our fear of loss and our sin, release us. Psalm 130, our shepherd good and true is he who will at last his Israel free from all their sin and sorrow. O come, O come, Emmanuel, O come, thou rod of Jesse, free thine own from Satan's tyranny, from the tyranny of darkness. From the depths of hell thy people save, and what? Give them victory over the grave. Free them from death. What we're about to sing. Lo, how a rose ere blooming. From sin and death he saves us. Joy to the world. No more let sins and sorrows grow. You can't understand Christmas. You can't understand the sweetness of what this celebration should mean for Jesus' followers. 
unless you look squarely in the reality of sin and death and look through it to the light that shines and will not be overcome. Here's the beautiful promise of Christmas. The promise is that though in the, last, in the former days God spoke by the law, by the prophets, in these last days God has spoken to us by His Son. I remember my first year or so as a pastor being completely overwhelmed by um, my insufficiency as a counselor. I still feel pretty much completely overwhelmed by it, but at least now, I'm ex- at least now I expect it. And I remember what a friend told me one time that really stuck with me. My instinct was always to give a book to somebody, right? That's how I'm helped, right? I love to receive books that, uh, on recommendation, have somebody read it with me, talk about the ideas in it. I think it's a great way to help people think through things and even come to some change. Good method. What this friend helped me see was that it felt dismissive. I was just handing a book to them as a way to keep from getting myself involved in their problems. Go fix yourself with this book. Now, I don't think that's what God was doing to us in sending the law and the prophets, but, but there's no question that in sending his son, things have changed. He's not just giving us something to read and saying, go fix your life. He has come into our experience with us. He has taken on flesh. The, world, the word became flesh. The light of life became flesh and he dwelt among us so we could look at him and see. We have beheld his glory. Glory as of the only begotten from the Father. Who else could it be? Full of grace and truth. He has come to us so that we can see him. He's come to live a life that shows our sin for what it is but promises us that there's a better way. He has come to die a death that makes forgiveness from our sin possible and he has come to rise again in history into a real body that was dead but now isn't so that the death that threatens everything we love about this world will not define who we are. He has come to give us the promise that the light shines even in the darkness of death and nothing, nothing, can overthrow it, that all sorrow will be redeemed, that everything that is lost to Jesus' followers will be restored. No more let sin and sorrow grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. Father, if Christ isn't for us, we have nothing but the darkness that limits our view and the shell of a life that we're able to lead in our own strength. But your promise to us is that you have come and that in the person of Christ, we have a light that nothing, nothing can overwhelm. Help us, we pray, to live in that light, to walk in it, to face death in it, to love each other through it. Give us the victory Jesus has won, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.